that whole practicing pulling the trigger with it at your fucking temple, I'm telling you right now, until you have even sat and imagined the kind of agony a person has to be in to do that. I mean, it's not like practicing anything else. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough, and when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations, hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. As always, a huge thanks to everybody who has joined me here on the podcast and to everyone who listens, really. Thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. Check the show notes to learn more about all kinds of other stuff, including our membership. And of course, if you have a moment, rate and review Suicide Noted on the Apple podcast platform. It helps people find it. Remember, these conversations are in part to help more people in more places feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. Finally, We are talking about suicide on this podcast. We don't hold back. So take that into account before you listen or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I'm talking with Elizabeth. Elizabeth lives in Washington State, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi. Elizabeth uh, in the Pacific Northwest, yes? That's correct. Yeah. In a car. Unfortunately, only due to the fact that I have a dog that's recovering from uh, FHO surgery, which is where they saw off the top of your femur that goes into the hip. She is a very whiny, needy, and, you know, I would just be, and I would be distracted because I feel like I feel her pain. (laughs) Ah, I feel like I can relate to the whiny and needy, and I don't have any problems with my femur. I'm just (laughs) just like that kind of guy. Yeah, likewise. Now back to the car for a moment. That is, that's a big car. A Subaru Ascent. It's the big one. It's the one you can seat seven in or throw a couple dogs in the back and a bunch of kids too. How, do you have a large family? Uh, yeah, in a way. My husband, we haven't been married for too many years, but yes, he has six kids from his previous marriage. Wow. Okay. We have two dogs, five cats. Just sold the chicken coop yesterday. I made a terrible chicken farmer. Right. One doesn't really know if they're going to be a good chicken farmer until they farm chickens and then they learn. (laughs) I was actually, I should say, I'm okay as a chicken farmer, but I can't control the coyotes. And we Mm. live in a rural area and they're way more wily than me. So So have you woken up or found dead chickens? Yeah. Coyotes. I mean, they're just doing what they do, I guess. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I don't I don't hold it against them. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to talk about suicide. That's the objective. That's, That's the point. part of the objective for sure. Now, you do know people usually don't talk about this stuff. Not so openly. How do I want to frame this? How is it that you came to be, for lack of a better word, either comfortable or not clearly uncomfortable in talking about such a personal thing? I guess in a way, I've talked about it most of my life. One of my brothers 
Oh my gosh, this opens up, I'm sorry, immediately into the one of the myths I'd like to dispel, but and maybe Ooh, okay. it's not a myth, it's arguable, but the whole like you can't say commit suicide because that that's what naturally comes to me because I was only in the third grade when mm-hmm. it happened. And uh, you know, I've spent 40 years saying committed suicide, and then suddenly um it became one of the many, many, many things that, you know, you're not supposed to say or, you know, sure. it's been changed. And I find it sad. I find it disconcerting and disappointing. But more than anything, I find it really frustrating. And I find that it's inconducive to what we really want. And that's for people to be able to talk about it. And if you start policing people's language or, mm-hmm. you know, for example, correcting even their language, then they come away feeling like they just did something wrong and they're not going to talk about it again. And let's be honest, nobody that has died by suicide gives one single fuck about wh- which words they choose, right? I mean, to say that you're preaching <laughs> to the choir would be an understatement. Yeah, I, I get the sentiment for sure. Commit, we associate with a crime. So why don't we use a word like complete or something? I get that. But a hundred percent, most importantly, the word police bullshit. Yeah, it's not helpful. I think the intention behind that is that they want to be helpful. But if you really were to boil it down to the real intention, I think honestly what it is, is their incapacity to deal with their own difficult emotions around it. And so then they're going to project it onto other people as if it's their responsibility you know, to help them manage their emotions. Maybe if somebody conceptualizes suddenly the criminal injustice system, well, that's that's valid, but that's something they have to work through. They shouldn't then decide that because that was a problem they had and they found a solution to it by mm-hmm. maybe reworking their vocabulary, that mm-hmm. that's a problem everybody has. Mm-hmm. And even if it was a problem everybody has, we don't all you know find the same solutions to be helpful. So... I actually makes me think, I don't know if this is a bit of a like tangent, but I'm so wary to ever suggest solutions of any kind. Not that they're never valuable. Maybe even like, especially like children who like just don't know stuff. You're like, oh, I know something. It might help you. But in this space, that's not what this podcast is, is about. But even outside of this podcast, because it helped me, I guess if I frame it that way, look, I don't know if this is going to help you. This helped me. If you want to hear it, great. That's cool for me. If someone approached me that way, but yeah, all this other shit, it's like one of the cool things that I like about how this podcast has sort of developed. And some people have given me feedback on this is that it's not that it's just people talking. Yeah. You can find all kinds of experts or whomever saying this is essentially, this is what you should do. And I'm sure maybe sometimes one of those things is you don't say commit, you say another word. It's like, and in five years, it'll be another word. I'm sorry. I didn't get the memo. I was busy trying to fucking stay alive. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, like there's other things going on. And in your case, you have like yeah. 9,000 humans or pets in your home. You're busy. 9,000 isn't more than you have. I know. I love hyperbole. I'm I'm ah. down with it. It's good. <laughs> so your your brother, when he was a kid, took his life. No, he was 21. I was a kid. Well, I guess he's a kid at 21. Anyway, yeah. He was suffering from, he had been recently diagnosed with schizophrenia. It was obviously triggered by the military. He was fine. And then he'd gone into the military and was doing the paratrooper Green Beret. So I'm sure he was experiencing all sorts of, you know, intense stressors, right? So yeah, they sent him home. And like I said, I was very young. So it's not like anybody was really explaining everything to me. 
but my family wasn't one to keep secrets or try to like dance around things either. So I was very aware and he came home and I experienced all sorts of interesting just observations, right? Like he would talk to the TV when it wasn't on. He would, you know, get angry at somebody that wasn't there or things like that. Yeah, I guess to make it even harder was in a way I was sort of his suicide note because I was I was the only one at home when he was leaving and he had a gun and and he told me he was, you know, he got a hold of me and was very serious and I had a friend over. We were playing and um he said I need you to listen. I need you to tell dad that I went down to the river to shoot birds. It was a hot day. So we were like, we want to go to the river. Can we go to the river? We no, you may and not. And he, well, he thought about it. You know, it was kind of like one of those shake your head, like, no, 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 no. We got to focus, focus, focus. Tell dad I went to the river to shoot birds. And he obviously shot himself. Yeah, that was his intent. And, you know, his, his journals and other people with, that he knew revealed that he had been experiencing homicidal and suicidal. So he wanted to to end that. Right. So, yeah. 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 So that was, I mean, I grew up in a family where mental illness was, well, I didn't realize that that was mental illness then, but anyway, there's, there's, there's a lot it's running through the veins of mom's side, dad's side through the family. Um, So, you know, we never shied away from talking about hard things because pretty much every day was a hard day. So I mean, mental- um, I'm the eighth born of nine kids, by the way. So big family then and now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mental illness. When I hear it, I just hear pain. That reminds me of something. I kind of went off on a tangent and I was saying, I mean, with my husband about the whole committed suicide policing, that vocabulary thing. And I said, you know, if for one instant, somebody who wanted to correct somebody else's speech about that had actually stopped to consider, or even somebody who judges people who have, you know, taken their lives or attempted to take their lives and they want to judge them as this is wrong, or this is the only right way to talk about it or whatever it is. I'm like, we need to hone in on what's important here. And that's that somebody was suffering so greatly, Mm -hmm. like take a moment and be curious about what kind of agony a person must be in to even consider it let alone plan it out. And I mean, I just got chills, you know, to go through with it. So and just have some compassion instead and maybe some curiosity and willingness. You know that you did say that you've been doing it for a long time in some form, talking about it, talking about this thing, whether it's maybe your brother or you or others. Clearly sounds like you have a pretty good sense of what people might need, like in terms of, let's just start off with not judging, shocker. Like, isn't that amazing? Is it not so obvious? Or are we just special, better people. (laughs) You mean those of us that can talk about it without like the criticism piece? Yeah. And by the way, I get it wrong a lot in my life with other humans and it may not be about suicide. I'm not by any means like the model listener. (laughs) The The word people historically have used, I don't know if it's the exact right word to sort of hold space. I don't know if that's a mm-hmm. bit too new agey or like just being able to be there with somebody and not blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard. And I think part of the reason is because when we are uncomfortable with something, I think that that term, at least for me, hold space kind of elucidates this ability to sort of, well, another term, sit with it, right? Like yeah. be in the presence with it without trying to do one of the, okay, so I have a Buddhist background, but there's this thing called the three poisons. The three poisons are you're either trying to push it away mm-hmm. or you're trying to pull it toward you. 
or you're just going to pretend like you don't care, like you're indifferent. So it's like passion, aggression, or ignorance. I think that Ooh, that's yeah. why people react is it feels poisonous and they don't know how to like, I mean, we all have judgments, but hopefully we also have some critical thinking and some self-restraint and the ability to realize like, sometimes you just need to be quiet or not share that judgment or catch the fact that, wow, I just made a really shitty judgment and I should probably keep it to myself. Agree. How'd you find the podcast? Um, I was looking up meditations for um, coping with suicidal thoughts. Okay. Something I hadn't, you know, really thought of previously. So this was a couple of years ago. It was during a period where I was surprised by the fact that this was coming up for me again. So I um, did what I do. I try to solve problems <laughs> as they come up. I tried to, you know, I guess I can say that some of the Buddhism after all the years has embedded in me. And so I, I think my like default modes are curiosity and courage. Like, so I, I definitely will have the courage to like look at something that's difficult or talk about something that's difficult Yeah, and then um, be curious about it instead of being you know, judgmental. And so in that state of curiosity, that sort of drove me to think, okay, I can help myself. Like I, there is a way out of this. All problems have solutions. The solutions aren't always what we desire. I grant you that. I could see how some people might push back against that, but I will embrace it for our purposes because it's how, what you believe. Well, I mean, ending something is a, is also a solution. We all make up meanings to words, right? And we all have yeah. our own relationship to the meaning of the word. But you reminded me of something when you say that the meaning of words. There's this question that I tend to ask here, and hopefully, and I believe in my life as well, that I think it might be the most underused. This is my ego is clearly healthy here. <laughs> most underused word in these kinds of conversations. And that is, what do you mean? Mm. because I think we're often having a conversation. We're actually kind of talking about two totally different things. You say you're depressed. I make this assumption about what that means or what that means for you. You mean something different. Where are we going from there? I mean, it's like, because I will tell yeah. you that the majority, and I'm not, this is not hyperbole, even though you love hyperbole, you said it. <laughs> most of the time, it's not what I thought they meant. Most. It's incredible. Yeah. I am often shocked by that. Even even in my own like relationships that are close relationships where I realize wait, I totally thought you meant something else. How did I go for whatever, mm -hmm. days, hours, weeks, whatever it was, right. thinking that you meant one thing when in fact you meant another? That's so perplexing. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So you put into some search function somewhere, something interestingly about meditations around this stuff. Yeah. Obviously, at some point, my thing comes up, mm -hmm. you click on it. I imagine you listen to at least part of one episode just to get a sense mm -hmm. of it. Uh, and when was that? It was a couple of years ago. And not that long ago, you reached out to me. Did we originally talk and then there was, we shelved it for a while? No, this is just more recent. No, no. What happened was I, I sent you a probably an overly lengthy email when I, and I was still in that curiosity mode where I was kind of still in this helping myself mode. And what I really wanted to know from you was, do you think like after the years that you've been doing this, do mm. you find that you could kind of do like a meta analysis of, of these people that have been on your podcast? And could you say that they fall into one of two camps? One camp being they were contemplating suicide because they saw it as an escape 
or they were contemplating an attempted suicide or and or because they felt like it was a solution to their problems. For some reason, I I got kind of hung up on thinking about that. I don't think it's possible to sort of like extricate one from the other. I think there's always overlap and nothing works in isolation. So I'm sure there are books out there or, or, or research reports that can make that distinction and talk about it at length. I don't know if I respond. I'm sure I responded to your email probably with, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here or I'm like kidding myself that I'm pretty decent at these conversations. But beyond that, in sort of really, what's the word, like analyzing or extrapolating additional insight? Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at it. it. It all becomes kind of blurry. I think people are in pain and they want to talk. Let's talk. That's kind of where it ends yeah. for me, for better or worse. Doubt I'm going to be the guy who writes the book and goes on some like world tour. <laughs> Did you get an answer to your question? I, you're not going to find meditations here. So that didn't work. Yeah, I found one decent meditation and then I made my own. <laughs> oh, okay. But have, having heard this podcast, you then wanted to talk with me. And thus, unless you change your mind, which you can, other people will hear it. Why? Why? Well, like we've already pointed out, I think it's not a topic that people talk about often. And that's really unfortunate because it happens often. You know, I think that that's a bit of a crisis when we have something that is highly misunderstood and highly mm. stigmatized mm. so much so that like, I, I mean, even the most recent, I think their intentions are good with the whole policing the words, but that just discourages people from talking about it more. Mm. That's my opinion. And it was my experience. And I know just from social media, you know, interactions with people that people shy away when suddenly they feel like they're being policed, you know, or like somebody, they say something and then everybody jumps on the bandwagon of correcting how, you know, that's politically incorrect or that's. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Unwoke or that's woke or that's whatever you want to label it again with words. Well, I think you also speak to something else, not just controlling the words. It's like when we tell people how to feel or how to think or what to do, that's all control in a sense. I'm going to tell you this, 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 this. And and often, not always, often, instead of doing what we said earlier, call it space, holding space, sitting with it, leaning in. I don't care what we call it. All right. Well, that person nine plus times out of 10 is just not going to talk to you anymore about this. And the most dangerous thing is that I think if if it's like your kid, they're going to say something because it's really hard to just say nothing. What are they going to say? I'm fine. I'm okay now. Things are better. I'm taking my meds. Things are getting better. Not knocking on parents. I'm not one. So I, I will not. Yeah. Ever. But man, oh man, oh man, oh man. It gets really tricky. Yeah. I, I have some probably unique and extreme views on this, but information is intriguing as a concept to me, but it's also as a fact, I think information is probably one of the most important, valuable resources we have. But again, it gets manipulated by those three poisons. Again, it's the passion, aggression, or ignorance. So it's like, I'm going to try to control what I hear and what I see. And, you know, people, it, it runs down all the way to the point where you you try to have a conversation with somebody because we're so used to not really sharing information, not really giving the truth, not really telling it how it is, that then you have these bizarre experiences. I've had, I've had this experience where I'm talking to somebody who's telling me that we're going to get together and go camping the next weekend. And we just had a good time. And you walk away with your beautiful wife and your three-year-old kid, and then you go and shoot yourself the next day. 
Like, how does that happen? It happens partially because we're not really sharing the truth. We're not really used to sharing information in its most raw, unadulterated, unfiltered, unpoliced, honest way, right? We're so used to fucking deceiving ourselves and each other. And I think that these conversations are important because it's a way of practicing talking about what is hard. You know, it's like a freaking meme out there to say, we can do hard things. I can do hard things. We can, no, 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 no. You you can't do hard things because you can't even talk about hard things. So maybe you accomplish a difficult task, but that's not really doing hard things. Like that's not, I don't know. It's not the same as what I think of when I hear that phrase, like a really deeply meaningful overcoming and letting go and just like something of more meaning. So that's why I'm talking about it is because, I mean, I'm sure I'll be judged. You can never say anything without being misunderstood by at least someone. You can never share something that's not going to offend or upset or trigger or whatever. But I still come back to my thesis is that information should be flowing freely And then it's up to all of us to figure out how to manage it, how to cope with it, what to do with it. (laughs) It's a really tricky spot because I absolutely understand why people stop talking about it. I mean, you start talking about it and you're you're met with police or met with aggression or you're met with, you know, hey, the three poisons, I just named one. Why why would you continue? You can be careful. So I get it. It's vulnerable. Vulnerability is talked about again it's kind of like you can do hard things be vulnerable but it's hard to do you know it's hard to do and is often met with discouragement you know discouraging feelings and all right so you're here talking about this we have a sense of why you said earlier with respect to feeling and i'm paraphrasing a little bit carefully like feeling suicidal or ideating or these thoughts coming up but you said they're coming up again what did you mean was there a time in your life when they first came up yeah I was quite surprised by it, actually, because I was in my 30s and had never previously thought about it. And it was after that experience that I just mentioned, because it was so shocking. It was so disconcerting to know somebody personally. It it just spoke volumes to me about the fact that we we do not have access to another person's internal experience. Mm -hmm. People can say all kinds of things and mean things. And like we already talked about, we can misunderstand or not apprehend it or comprehend it. So it was just really troubling to me that that could happen (laughs) and not that I wasn't like aware. And I was already going through all of my own really, really, really difficult things. I was in an abusive relationship. My daughter was experiencing all sorts of difficulties. She was only, she was quite young. I only have one of my own daughters, by the way, one of my own children. I was depressed. I think more than depressed, I was overwhelmed by life. So yeah, I started thinking about that. That's what it was, is I would see people that I worked with. I had my dream job. I interacted with people that I mostly enjoyed interacting with. And I would think to myself, do you actually have any idea how much pain I'm in? And that's where it all started. I started sort of deeply contemplating how weird it was that we never really know what another person is feeling. Even somebody that you're intimately 
involved with and love dearly. And it's no secret that people lie and cheat and deceive. And I mean, it's mind boggling. And that just was hard. And it made me not want to live. <laughs> We're limited here by words. I, I understand that. It was that idea more than anything else that made you think I might want to check out. I don't, I can't quite put my finger on it because I think they were all overlapping. It was a perfect Mm. storm. Mm. It was realizing that this person just took his own life and, you know, worked for Microsoft and had amazing money. And like, I was in Seattle at the time and I don't know, it was just really disconcerting to me. And then it also made me start realizing nobody else really knows me. Like nobody, people that I work with see me one way. People that I, and these are things I had thought about for years because I'd been studying Buddhism. There was something about the fact that I was struggling so hard to keep my shit together. That's what really made me realize it was I was like, wow, I look to other people like I have it together. The director of the school I was teaching at came in and, you know, complimented me on how organized I am and how she wants to use me as a model for the new hire. And I was just like, you have no fucking idea how hard I struggle to keep it together. I am so disorganized. I am so ADD in my brain. Having such a hard time with life right now. And I I don't know. That's how it started. I started, people would talk to me and I'd be like, what would you think if you came to my funeral? Because I went to my friend's funeral. Again, it was just mind boggling how everyone was just, I think part of it is people want to just focus on what was good, right? But part of it too is just blatant ignorance on our part. Like we don't really pay attention maybe to the little nuanced cues and things, or we don't really ask the hard questions. Like we say, hey, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? And then we just move on with our day. One of my friends told me recently, she says when somebody asks that, and she's having a bit of a go, she just says, I'm middle-aged. That's how she answers. I'm like, I am totally stealing that. How long did you feel that way? And I understand it's not probably like you woke up one day and you were journaling and you know, it was exactly two years. And two, how close did you come? Yeah. Okay. So good questions. Thank you. That was just sort of like the introductory swimming lessons, so to speak. Like that was for the first time me having that feeling. And it started with that question of like, what would you say or do at my funeral? Like I'm standing here, we're having a conversation, our mouths are moving and I'm just doing the normal, you know, things by responding to your questions in the normal ways. But what I'm really standing here thinking is you have no idea who I am or what's going on in my life. And do you really care? Yeah. And then I would go home and be overwhelmed by just being in an abusive relationship and having a child with special needs and Mm. uh, all of my undealt with trauma that was like starting to creep up and come out. But I was still so in the throes of the traumatic events that I couldn't come up. So I managed my way through it just because I mostly was in survival mode for my daughter. Yeah. And really focusing. But actually, that was the beginning then of what came next. So then, you know, those are like the introductory swim lessons. But it was like I was dipping my toe and realizing that I was beginning to feel like my daughter's struggles were actually my fault. Everything that she's experiencing is because she's maybe she's picking up on all of my undealt with history of trauma and the fact that 
I'm gone back to this guy six times, you know, and we've like come and gone. This is having an effect on her. And I'm actually causing these problems that she is manifesting with. So yeah, so then that was the next time that the real thoughts of suicide came to me were maybe like two years after that. And I had to move from Seattle. I had to leave my dream job because I, you know, was not going to be in that relationship anymore. And the cost of living on a teacher's salary, um, and I taught at a private school, so I was maybe on the more upper yeah, end of that, but it just, it was not doable. And I did everything that I could to try to make it work, but I had to leave and I had to move to this town that I had grown up in where my, you know, brother had killed himself. And I got a teaching job at the elementary school that I had gone to mm-hmm. and experienced hit tons of horrible things in my life that I'd never really talked about. And it mm-hmm. turned out my daughter's you no know, second grade classroom had been my fifth grade classroom in which like the teacher was so abusive. It was horrible. So wow. when I say abusive, let me, let me define that when I'm talking about a public school teacher, like I never did my homework because my life was chaos and school didn't matter to my parents. Most of my siblings had dropped out of school. I didn't do my homework and she would keep me in at recess. But not only would she keep me in at recess, she would pull down the blinds or those shades, those solid roll down shades. She would pull down the blinds. She would turn off the lights and she'd make me crawl under my desk and spend the entire recess in the dark under my desk. Yeah. So I was teaching there at that school and it was just weird. It was like all the skeletons in the closet that I'd Mm -hmm. kept nice and neatly tucked away were just crashing in. And I always feel like eventually shit's going to catch up always, but I I think I'm wrong. I think some people can somehow manage and they, I mean, again, we all do it to some degree, right? But yeah. anyway, with you, let's get back to you. Easy, easy to sort of talk in generalities. In part, that didn't work. You put them away, they come back. Yeah, I was coming unraveled. I was actually having a total nervous breakdown. It was horrible. It was just so, I mean, socially, uh, it was deprivation. I came from Seattle where I'd been living for 20 years and I did not grow up with education, but for some bizarre reason, I went into education and wanted to be a teacher. And I really like learning because I'm curious. I was working at a private school at that time where most of the people were smarter than me. The parents were paying $35,000 a year, you know, for their kid just the first year to come and then tuition would increase. So their parents were really smart people. And I tended to talk with these people and my own social circles were just, I liked to be around people that are smarter than me because it makes me think and I get to learn things, right? (laughs) Like I get to learn things. And I didn't realize that until I came back to this town that I'd grown up in. And it's just a tiny rural town. And to say, you know, from the compassion of my heart, it is not their fault. I mean, this is generational trauma is prevalent here. The socio-educational economic factor is very low here. It was just depressing. It was so freaking depressing. And it was the school that I'd gone to. And I had the same, they haven't even bought new blinds, like the same blinds. Every, it was so gross. Everything was just old. And I, they were using these antiquated teaching materials. And I was just devastated. I was so lonely and depressed. And then the perfect storm happened was I actually found out 
why my daughter had been sort of spiraling downward and stopped learning and regressed and couldn't tie her shoes. And we had been being sexually abused by somebody that we trusted wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And it had been going on for years. And when I found that out, okay, hang on, let me back up. That actually gave me purpose. Like I needed, I realized then it, it wasn't me. Like I wasn't the cause. But prior to finding that out, I was already coming unraveled and I was feeling like it's even worse for her now. Like she has the worst situation. She would be better off without me in her life. Like mm. I need to, it's the solution to the problem. And about how old were you when all of this was going on? 40s because I'm 50 now. And it was 2016 was when I really had made up my mind that I was going to do this. To kill yourself. Mm -hmm. And did you have a plan? You know, the standard questions. I looked up like, what is, there's this thing called the agony scale even. And like how, and I immediately I went with a gun just because that's what I had known. Everyone that I knew that had killed themselves did it with a gun. So I already had a gun. What I did was I researched which bullets were going to be best and practiced pulling the trigger with no mm -hmm. bullets in it at my head because I also realized that this is not something I although I'm very familiar with guns and should be no surprise rural area grew up military family like guns are just a regular part of life and so I grew up around guns grew up shooting guns like guns are a normal part of my life although for 20 years I had been you know in Seattle and not like, wasn't my lifestyle, wasn't my thing, but it was easy to get one when I came back home. So, but yeah, more important to me was figuring out which bullets are going to be the best. I need to practice pulling the trigger because although I'm very familiar shooting a gun, I, I you know, I practiced shooting this one, got familiar with it, but that whole practicing pulling the trigger with it at your fucking temple, I'm telling you right now. Until you have even sat and imagined the kind of agony a person has to be in to do that. I mean, it's not like practicing anything else. Anything it's not else. like practicing anything else. Yeah. Without getting too graphic, and you can, of course, say, I'm not answering that. A few questions. As you're planning this and you're researching the bullets and practicing and all the stuff, at that time, because that's over a period of time, you're mothering. Yeah. And Are you working? Teaching. You're right, oh, right. Yeah. That, this is what's fascinating to me. And that's not the best word, but that's the word that came out of my mouth. Like you didn't just drive three hours away, hold yourself up somewhere and do it all there. This is while you're living, which includes mothering, which includes shopping for food, presumably, or helping her with her homework or going to work. All of this is happening. And in between that, in the little crevices, you're online, you're holding a gun. You're going somewhere that obviously no one's going to see you because you sure as shit can't be seen doing that. Where are you when you're practicing this? It's astounding. Like where? I am exactly where I know I'm going to be when I do it. That's that's how deeply my mind went into this is like familiarity is everything. If one thing goes wrong, like for me, the biggest horror was it not going right. Sure, sure, if something sure. goes wrong, I mean, I that was the biggest horror to me. And it's why, you know, I chose what I chose and why I, I was like, this is the most likely <laughs> to be certain. Well, when you go, to, you know, all the way to like, okay, use hollow tip bullets, where to hold it, you know. All um, the stuff that's going to increase the chances that it's going to work. 
I practiced where I knew I was going to do it because I also didn't want unsuspected things. To, so that was in my bedroom. Okay. So you were going to do it in your bedroom. And when you were practicing, did you say, I'm going to do it next week, next month, Friday, this date, uh, this the morning, because I like the sun and I want to be looking like, how detailed did you get? Well, I had to do it when I knew my daughter wasn't going to be home. And I also wanted to do it when I knew that because I lived in a very small triplex. I mean, I could hear my neighbors, unfortunately, through the wall, like you hear everything. Mm -hmm. So I also wanted it to be when the neighbors on the side where my bedroom was, weren't going to be home. So I planned it out for when my daughter was going to be with her grandparents. And um, I knew that my neighbor wasn't going to be home. It's worth reminding, zooming out for a moment, the sort of premise of this entire podcast is to help people feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. That's the main thing. And I ask these questions, not because I get off on such graphic details, because I know people out there are in a similar situation. I know this for sure. Many, so many, right? So are you tunnel visiony here? What's the word? Are you excited? I would imagine there's a lot of conflict and internal chaos. There was a lot of certainty that it was the right thing to do. There was a lot of certainty that although I know this is going to be hard, I know, you know, I know it's going to be hard for my family. I know it's going to be disappointing for people. Some people are going to be angry. Some people are, you know, I wouldn't say I ever experienced tunnel vision. I'm sort of unfortunately hyper aware of Mm. everyone around me and what they're at least what I think they're thinking and feeling. I mean, I've come very sure. full circle to realize I have no fucking idea what you're thinking. Like, I think I know what you're thinking, but I'm pretty sure right now that there's really no way that I could be sure. So yes, I, I was hyper aware of all sorts of things going on, situations and scenarios and possibilities. And I had narrowed it down to the most, you know, succinct and, you know, distinctly planned out thing that I could for there to be success and not a mess. What happened? My brother came over. That day? That moment. That's the weirdest part about it all. And this is where, this is something that I've, I, I don't anymore, but for years I struggled with because I did dive into uh, religion. So I grew up Mormon. I did then d dive into it after that. But because only because like people think that like something like this happens and oh, God, your angels intervened. Like there is no other plausible explanation for sure, or, sure. on your bed. Sure. And, you know, you're like my brother was in the military for he retired from the military. Like he's clockwork. He doesn't do things without planning it out. He doesn't do things that are spontaneous. Like he doesn't. It was weird. And he drives a big ass loud truck. I mean, the parking, like the, our triplex is like practically on the sidewalk. So he, you know, drives a big monster truck up on the, and I hear it and uh -huh. I'm sitting on my bed and I've already done my practice rounds. I hadn't put a bullet in the chamber yet, but you know, they were out on my lap. I mean, they, it was on my lap and I had already practiced six times pulling the trigger. I guess you could say at that moment would be the closest I could say to tunnel vision because maybe if he hadn't driven a loud truck, maybe it wouldn't have snapped me out. But I don't know. I, I Even the sound of the truck only was like a background thing because nobody comes to my house. Like nobody knocks well, on my door well, and he knocked on my door. What was he doing there? 
this is even weirder. And this is another reason like I struggled with not only other people being like, oh, that's God. That's like you, you had angels. So what happened (laughs) was clearly like my siblings, some of my siblings were sort of queuing in to that. I was maybe a little off recently, but none of them aside from him, aside from him live anywhere near one lived in Cairo and the other one was living in at that time. I think she was in Florida. I don't know. She wasn't here. They call my brother Mark. So I guess my sister had called my brother in Cairo and said, have you been talking to her? You know, how do you think she's doing? And anyway, the time is very different in Cairo. And so he, it just so happened that it was the middle of the day here. And Mm. he calls my brother. He calls him and he says, uh, you know, have you talked to Elizabeth lately? You know, Lisa called me and she's really worried about her. You know, said she's acting weird and just really worried that she's not responding the way that she usually does. And, you know, and so Mark said, no, I haven't, you know, or I saw her the other day, but everything seemed fine. And Jared was like, you should probably check on her. And at that moment, his house was filled with his grandkids and his daughter, and they were walking out the door to go to the county fair. He decides, oh, I'll invite her to go with us. He spontaneously decides to come to my house and invite me to go to the fair with them. Mm -hmm. And what's going through my head when I realize what's happening is I'm thinking, I cannot make him be the one to find me. He's going to hear that and he's going to know what just happened. He will live for the rest of his life knowing that he walked to the door, heard his sister pull the trigger and had to go be the one to find me. So just to be clear, you had practiced several times. The bullets are on your lap. The gun is in your hand or nearby. You hear the truck. It's so interesting that you shared that. Was there a party that's like, I got to do it a little faster than I expected? Fuck, I got to do this now. I got to do this now. And then, <laughs> and then the other part of that is when you decide not to, and I presumably answer the door, do you take everything and sort of neatly put it in a draw so there's no way he's going to know? No. Let me tell you what happened. So- the sound of his truck was pretty distinct, but I wasn't absolutely sure. I was hyper-focused on what I was right. doing. It was an inconvenience because I, you know, maybe, fuck, why is somebody here? Nobody's here. It's a, there's, there's like 500 people in the town. Like nobody, it's like, I don't know, but it was when the knock on my door, like the truck pulls up literally within seconds. So it's that fast. And I'm like, it is Mark. I just burst into tears. I just immediately was just like, I just fell apart because I was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember distinctly what I thought, but I just, it was just like a collapse of everything. It was like, I built this perfect hard castle and somebody breathed and then it just fell. And I knew I, I did make a decision. I knew I could not make him this happen. This cannot all transpire this way. It, it can't happen this way. I didn't make a decision beyond that. Like I didn't say to myself, oh, you know, you'll do it in an hour. You'll do it at the moment. It was like the castle just collapsed. I got to answer the door. And so I did it and I was crying. So he was like, are you okay? And I said, no, you know, I'm really not okay, Mark. I I want you to come to the fair with us. Do you want to, you know, you want to go clean up, go wash your face. And that's when I start thinking like, okay how can I do this? What do I do? What do I, you know, now I'm having to make decisions and be like, okay, how do I make this happen later? What do I, do I just say, okay, I'm going to wash my face and then come out and tell him to go away? Or do I, you know, I I had to make a decision. I'm like, I'm, 
okay, I'll go wash my face. I go in the bathroom, I'm washing my face and I, I just fall apart. It just crying again. I said, I can't go anywhere. I can't stop crying. This isn't going to stop right now. And he's like, what's, what's going on? He sits down on the ground. He knows I sit on the ground. <laughs> Meditation cushions on the ground. He sits on the ground, which is for him a big thing too. Like right. that, that was odd. And I sit down there and, and he's like, what's going on? And I don't say anything for a long time transpires. I, it felt like eons, but it was probably maybe 10 minutes, which is a long time to sit with somebody who's crying. Right. Especially somebody who's like, my wife and kids and grandkids are all waiting for me. This is all weird. Yeah. And his phone is buzzing. It's blowing up, you know? And he's like, okay, hang on. Take some messages. He's like, give me a few minutes. You guys go without me if you need to. But, you know, and then they're like, what's going on? It's like more and more life is happening, right? This this is this thing called life. And it just happens. Like it doesn't stop. And I had that thought, like, even if I was dead right now, life would not have stopped like for me it would have but it just keeps going and going and going and he says you know hey there isn't anything that isn't solvable it's this stupid refrain that I finally embraced but anyway I still haven't said anything and then I get up and I walk into my bedroom and I pick up it, it was a hard black case and you know had little egg crate shell cushions on the inside and yeah. So anyway, the bullets are laying next to it and I, I walk out and it's open, of course, and I'm holding it and I hand it to him and I just burst into tears crying. He knows what's going and, on. Oh, he knows. He knows now. Now he knows, right? Now he gets it. He just stays and he talks to me. I don't even remember what we talked about. It was mostly small talk. There was something about he would help me build a bookshelf. That's awesome. Like, I have a lot of books <laughs> and I was like there, I still hadn't unpacked all the way from moving there, you know, and I, I didn't want to leave like yeah. I, anyway, yeah, it just, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. like, let's, let's plan things. Let's make some plans. And we never talked about it again. Like it was, it to this day has never been brought up. It's never been addressed. Wow. Um, some years went by, no, not years, months went by. Hang on a minute. Maybe it was a year. But I asked for my gun back hmm. and he, I don't have it. He didn't give it to me. That's kind of when I knew like, this is not, we, we can't talk about this. We're, we're, we're the kind of people who are like, you don't take things from people that they don't give to you. And if right, they want right. it back, you give it back to them. Right, like that's, right. that's the kind of BS we don't want to deal with. So, you know, again, I was like, okay, I'm not going to push this. I wanted to come back at him and be like, Hey, that's, that's my gun. Like I yeah. paid good money for that. And I want it back and you have a million, you don't need it. You know? So it's pretty, pretty common. Yeah, people don't talk about it. Well, we're just going back to what we said before. Yeah, it doesn't come up. Just move on. Yeah. Have you ever wished or do you ever wish that he had not come over, whether he's an angel or not, that day, that moment, and you had uh, you had gone through with it? I did think that. But then I think it was within my concept of time has always been a little wonky, but especially during times of stress, like it just kind of all merges together. So I'm not always accurate in my timelines, but it was shortly after that, that I found out. So to answer your question, yes, I, I had thought and I wanted to do it still. But there was that thought of like, why did that happen? Like, how was it? Like, what are the chances? What are the odds? It, it was just so unlikely that that would happen. 
And so, of course, everyone that I shared it with wanted to tell me that it was was God. And I only entertained that idea for a very short period of time. And then it just made me want to do it again more, just because it was that feeling of like, this is not a world I belong in. People who want to resort to the supernatural as an explanation, don't don't accuse me of wanting to take a shortcut or take the easy way out, was my thought. You're driving. Can you look at the road? Not me. <laughs> Remember, there's like nobody in this town. Okay. I'm I'm gonna thank you. I'm gonna just park in the shade is all I needed to do. So <laughs> driving around rural Washington, probably not terribly far from those ugly blinds in your elementary school. Class. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah. You said it made you want to do it more. Did you try again or almost try again? No, no, I would have. I, I most certainly would have had I not then discovered the reason that my daughter had been declining in her well-being. Yeah. And that was another weird thing. I mean, you know, I'm in, can't remember the exact age now. And I should because it was one of her questions because it was the middle of the night and I was just sobbing in our tiny apartment. and. It woke her up and she came out and she was asking me, you know, what is wrong? Like, why are, why do you keep crying? Like, why? Because after my failed plan, I really did downward spiral bad. It was bad then. And I, I had to quit working then. It was like, finally, it just all came crashing down. I was sick. I was sick mentally, physically, everything. And I just told her, I said, honey, you know how you broke your leg and we put a cat on it and it, it's healing. It's going to heal. I said, so um, I've had some pretty severe breaks, like emotionally in my life, in my, in my heart and in my mind. So they're not my bones. I said, but they never really got to heal properly. And so now I'm trying to do that healing and it's really hard work. I said, it's really hard work. And so I'm probably going to cry a lot, but it's going to be okay. And she says, mommy, how old are you? And I told her how old I was. And she says, well, I don't think I can live with the pain that long. I don't think I can live with it that long. And I said, it's healed up, honey. You don't even have to wear an air cast anymore. Like, it's all good. And she's like, that's not what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so then she tells me in a cryptic way, okay, hold on. Let me give an important point of reference. She is like me. And so she asks a lot of questions like, like what, what were your, what were the break? What, why, why did your heart break? Why did your mind, what happened? You know? And so I told her, because I do believe I always have for a long time, the information is important to share as much as you can, like as appropriately as you can. And so I was trying to find age appropriate words, but I was telling her that, you know, moving back here has been really hard. And a lot of the things that I went through as a kid are skeletons in the closet that are coming out now. And he's like, mm -hmm. like what? <laughs> I'm telling her. And so the, the childhood sexual abuse comes up as well. Mm -hmm. So I share that with her. So that's what made that light bulb come on in her head. And then that's when a few minutes later, after we talk a little more, she says, you know, how old are you? And then he says, I don't think question. I can live with it that long. I love that question for some reason. How old are you? <laughs> so she says, so obviously at that point, you are very clear on what she's implying. Oh, yeah. And we spent the rest of the night just, I was just trying to, as delicately as possible, just get a minimal amount of information, but just to be sure, you know, just to be sure about who. And Weird question. I'm not a parent. I'm wondering, were there moments after discovering this or afterwards 
after discovering this, right, or any point after where you went from suicidal to homicidal. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, yes, it, it crossed my mind, but I became extremely rational. That's where I've remained. Like that's been my pursuit. I've resented the hell out of my, you know, lack of education growing up and my impoverished background and all of that, because I knew then like, these are problems that I have to figure out how to solve. And I'm going to need all of the bandwidth I can gather. And if I'm going to stay alive to help my daughter, Mm -hmm. which I know she wants and needs now, like she's made it very clear that now I know that I'm not the cause. I'm not the cause of why she's been in PTSD. Like, I, I mean, she had all the PTSD symptoms. And I was like, I am just literally giving her my PTSD. I am teaching her how to display PTSD symptoms. I had no, I I would never in a million years would have thought that this person was doing what he was doing. And it had happened to me Mm -hmm. multiple times growing up. Mm -hmm. And I had become very educated about it. And I had had ad nauseum conversations with my daughter about it. Mm -hmm. And we had books in there and she'd been present when I insisted on talking to her friends about it. It's again, you, we do not have access to reality. We have access to what we create as our framework. Well, I know for sure she's still around and you're still around. And I know, so obviously some of the stuff, not that you need to hear this from me, but something's working. But I also know a couple of years ago, you started having thoughts again. So I'm curious, can you identify kind of what that was about? You might have alluded to it earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. So just I want to add happy ending there is that maybe the good that did come out of the things that I taught my daughter was that when she did go in to give her police report and do the whatever the forensic psychologist interview, they came to me, you know, and this is horrible news, of course, but then they said, we want to give you some good news. And that's that you've taught her things like her vocabulary is incredible. He used body part specific language. She was very capable of describing things in in detail. And, you know, these kinds of cases are rarely even prosecutable, but um, her testimony and the, uh, you know, those things are, it's, it's compelling. He obviously ended up confessing to it, but he went to prison or is still in prison. So he was sentenced to 7.75 to life. Seven to life based on what? Yeah. Why would you get seven versus life? What are you doing in that time? Well, in order to actually not be released would mean that they would have to deem that he was uh, likely to reoffend. He's a very, very intelligent, book smart kind of person who also knew a lot about law. He knew that it was in his best interest to admit, play the role of rehabilitatable because the life part comes from if they decide that this person is likely to reoffend, they can keep them in prison until they have demonstrated that they're not going to be a threat to society. Yeah, he's busy writing a movie script, I hear. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. your next your next point was that um came back to it. Yeah. And I guess this isn't a surprise or shouldn't be a surprise. What it was was I guess two years ago, there was a case that was on, I just came across it on social media and I thought it was interesting. Um, This person's name was Alan Walker and it was spelled A-L-Y-N, you know, so intentionally, 
you know, you're not, you're not sure of gender. Okay. Now keep in mind, again, I live in a, like a very conservative, homophobic, racist place. So I usually come across these things. And unfortunately it's somebody is like posting it to be like, oh, here's another reason to not like trans people, you know, or whatever. And I usually come at it with like a more discerning eye and I want deconstruct it and look into it and figure out what's actually going on here. And I find out that this person is a professor at a university. The reason they're being called a pedophile supporter or, you know, a defender of pedophiles is they're a professor of sociology, had written a book called The Long Dark Shadow, and it had just gotten published. And that was the controversy. They got put on um, like suspension or something. And I was very, it's just, I'm a curious person. So I wanted to figure out what was actually going on here. And I went so far as to get the book at the library and I got the book and I started reading it. And then I, I went, okay, this is where I lost it. This is where, this was the distinct day where it just all came unraveled for me was I went on Reddit. And at that point, I'd never even been on Reddit before. Elizabeth, um, don't go on Reddit. Okay. And that's because this world had been opened up to me that I'd never heard of. And so this person's book was about trying to uh, destigmatize pedophilia. Okay, now again, like the the mission and the reasons and the purpose behind this person's mission really were are noble. Let's have compassion for mm-hmm. people who have a disorder mm-hmm. that um, they don't have control over. That they were they were born this way, and you know, a lot of this stuff I just don't know. I don't know. I only know what I read from the the specialists or whatever. And so it was all news to me, even right. that sure. pedophilia is a a disorder, a mental disorder. I so maps M A P S minor attracted person. So instead of calling these people a pedophile, let's call them a minor attracted person. And so that was the beginning of the unraveling because like I said, right. you know, words matter, language right, matters. Right, right. I even tried to do like a compassion meditation for this. Like I tried to imagine. Okay. So anyway, Reddit took me down the rabbit hole of yep. there are sex toy dolls and things oh, like that. Every, and yeah. this is supposed to help them. I'm personally knew and was very close to somebody who struggled with an addiction to heroin at no point would i suggest you stick this needle in your arm and just pretend like you're shooting up heroin to get rid of the urge like that doesn't fucking make sense this is stupid you don't give them a sex doll and tell them to have imagine that they're having sex with the child and that helps them so i i don't even need to discuss this any further because it's still so mind-boggling to me that it just sent me into a spiral where I was like, I cannot live in this world. This world is so sick. I just was, I mean, it was horrible. Like I couldn't stop crying every day. I would just, I would wake up and I would think this world is filled with people who do these horrible things to children. I don't think that there's anything okay with, let no, we need to stigmatize it. <laughs> and, and then I struggled with Elizabeth, you're a judgmental, bad person. Like you need to have more compassion. You need to understand that you don't understand. <laughs> I could see both sides. I mean, Hey, by the way, if you think people don't talk about suicide, they really don't talk about that. No, it's just, again, So people can't talk about hard things. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I I literally just wanted to die. Like, I didn't mm. want to have to do it. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to. And so I was immediately verbal about it. 
this is when I found you in your podcast, because this was when I was like, I have to take action. Like okay. I, I got to nip this right away. Like these thoughts of wanting to die, this is not conducive to life. And I want to well, live life and I want to live well. You know, I've come a long way. I was like, I've come way too far. I've battled this battle. I cannot slip. This is a slippery slope. And it was, I had gotten to the point where I didn't need to take meds anymore. Because during that first bout, I had gone on all sorts of medications and had seen a psychiatrist. And yeah, and then I went through the whole getting off all of this stuff. And, you know, oh, by the way, yeah, a part of that was making a career change. And, you know, I want to be a health coach. And in order to make health my priority in life and well-being, as I oh. process all this garbage, mm. I can't do it as a teacher because especially in this rural area, it is a dragon that cannot be slayed. It is just a daily battle against the forces of <laughs> the idiocy. Horrible, horrible, horrible public schools mm -hmm. are horrible places. I became a health coach. I started teaching yoga. I started teaching meditation classes. I was Great. really ramped up on my own meditation practice, but I would sit down to meditate and I would, I would think about dying. And I, that was the day that I opened my eyes and there was a robin sitting in the pear tree that was, you know, right there. I usually meditate on, on the balcony. I just had this for some reason, vision of <laughs> so horrible. Anyway, it was a vision of its head blowing up. And then I, I just sat with that. I was like, okay, don't push it away. That's weird. Like I love animals so much. Like that is so weird. That's, that's not a good sign. And then it, it just, it, it snowballed. And, and as I, you know, agreed with myself that I'm not going to try to run from this or hide from this instead, I'm going to confront it and I'm going to let these thoughts come up and really see what's going on here. And then I envisioned like my own head exploding and just that feeling. And I just felt this like sense of almost aggression of like, oh my God, that would feel so good. So good to finally complete that. I just, I want to pull the trigger. I want the explosion. Like, I know this is really graphic. I'm sorry, but that was what was happening in my mind. I was like, this has to happen. Mm -hmm. And then- I stood up and I told my husband right away, I was like, I need to get on medication. I need to, to see a counselor. I need to maybe stop meditating for a while because it's just making this worse. I just need to make some changes again. Without getting into the details, just for the sake of time, obviously during this time, you meet somebody and marry them. Yes. <laughs> okay. I could be wrong here and I'm probably projecting, but I think typically people that are wanting to kill themselves actively are probably not seeking out and or attracting somebody they might marry. So there's got, that's some positivity going on there. Probably, no? Yeah. I mean, I think that for the most part, people were surprised as I became more open about talking about the kinds of thoughts that go through my mind. Like they would see just this kind of pretty kept together, sweet person who seems mm -hmm. to have it together you know and these are the things that like it's hard to make the connection between the kinds of verbs or adjectives and things that get used and then to reconcile it with self but my husband was able to see the depth of me <laughs> and the complexity yeah. and the difficulties I was never anything but completely real in fact I tend to go overboard with anybody who shows interest in like, yeah, 
you think you're getting one thing, but I'm not what you think. So you need to know that I I do that. a lot. Yeah. 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 Scare them away. (laughs) It's a good strategy. Oh, you didn't scare them away, obviously. (laughs) <laughs> you're a mother of seven in some ways. I thought his kids might be older. I don't know. They're older and live in Utah anyway. So Okay. Whatever you did two years ago when you got up from that Robin experience, your own head exploding experience, so you got some help and it seems to have worked at least a little bit. Yeah. Here's a plug for ketamine, by the way. Uh-huh. IV infusions. If you can afford it. Yeah. That's another thing that I was lucky with my husband. Are you vaping or are you getting high? Oh, that's so interesting. That would be another podcast. But no, I can't smoke marijuana. I found out that it causes psychosis in me. Real full-blown actual psychosis, like hospitalized psychosis might have something to do with the schizophrenia in my family, the genes that are prevalent. So no, but I did start smoking and that did begin actually as an intentional way to help myself go back to meditation. And it started with being able to see my breath. Who starts smoking when they're 40, 48 years old? Some people. Some people. How many people know we're talking? Probably five. So it's not a secret. No, I don't do secrets. Right. <laughs> Did you ever get a diagnosis that you agree with? Yes. Yes. Right? I mean, I had first been diagnosed with PTSD back in 1996, but I didn't agree with it then. I I agree with that now, but back then I didn't. I didn't understand it. So I was re-diagnosed with PTSD multiple times and, and, you know, detailed confirmation through psychiatric care and things. But I've also been diagnosed with major depressive disorder. I've been diagnosed with, this was really kind of sad because it was hard to see in writing. And this happened when I quit teaching and tried to change jobs. There are some support networks out there. Before I met my husband, I needed all the support I could get. So anyway, they help you make a transfer if you qualify through DSHS. And in that, they list out all of the probabilities for what kind of jobs. And it was all written out. It was PTSD. It was major depressive disorder. It was GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. Those are the only ones that I agree with. Are you still on any meds? Um, I So I did just start taking meds again. Mm-hmm. And um, so I am now. I take Zoloft. Um, I take Adderall. So I went back to taking that. It was really helpful. And yeah, I just went through another round of um, ketamine treatment. So I've done it twice now because I did just go through a third time where it started happening again. Uh, it was just triggered by the death of Tina Turner. That's another whole long story. But anyway, yeah. So I just went through this again and um, I'm not going to stop taking my meds ever. I decided I'm like, I'm just, it doesn't matter how much ketamine you course through my veins. It's not going to change my brain. Only habits and daily lived experience change your brain permanently. <laughs> mm-hmm. And even then it's not permanent. I mean, neuroplasticity is a double-edged sword. Does your daughter know about the day you almost died? No, she doesn't know in detail. Actually, no, because honestly, so much just went into her. Like right. it was just all about like, I had to take care of her. I had to be the person. I mean, you know, this stupid meme, I've got to make it come true. Like be the person you wish had been there for you when you were a kid. Okay. I needed to do that for her. Does anybody other than, I'm pretty sure I know the answer here, but nonetheless, does anybody other than your brother and me know about that day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've shared it. I'm pretty sure your husband knows. Oh, yeah. So you're 50 years old. Let's use the, let's go to 55. I don't know. That's, that's the magic number for me right now. I like it. Will that's, well, do you know what my question is? Um, I think you're going to ask if I would see myself 
ever contemplating committing suicide again? Pretty much. I, I am glad you asked this question. And I think, again, it's probably a whole nother podcast, but I, I've come to grips with the fact that it seems to be a fact for me. And I know for many other people, it's like once you let that genie out of the box, it's really mm. hard to get it back in. And if you right. think about it in brain, like it really, that's what I mean by the double-edged sword of neuroplasticity is like you change your brain with every thought, every action. And on one hand, those can cut in a really bad way. But on the other hand, we have the ability to change those and I guess cut it in a good way, make, make, lay down those little pathways, you know, in all the directions you want them to, but it is a lot of work. Yeah. And it takes, you know, I can't change the fact now that I've thought about it so much in my life that there are going to be certain things that are going to activate those neural pathways again. What is one thing that helps you cope that people might be surprised by? <laughs> Nicotine. Definitely people Nicotine. would be surprised by. I mean, health coach, meditation. I was smoking a cigarette out on the balcony this morning and, you know, I have my meditation cushions out there. And I literally said to my friend a few minutes later, I was like, I felt so embarrassed when the neighbors saw me smoking. I like it better when people see me meditating out there. Like it really does so much better to serve my image. (laughs) You know what I love? I've learned this about myself. It's probably not that uncommon. I love when people are, she meditates and she smokes. Those two don't go together. (laughs) Well, sure they can go together. I love that where there's two things people do that seem to be at odds. And I love it even more. I don't know if this applies to you when they're like, yeah, fuck it. That's how I am. Is there one, perhaps two myths you would like to dispel? I always ask that question. I have a big hang up with the the hang up that people have about saying committed suicide. And I, I really think that we just need to tap into curiosity, courage, and compassion instead of like trying to be the language police. I think the other myth is that it's easy, that it's the easy way out. I've learned that, oh, this was the word. It was a cop-out, that Mm. suicide is a Mm cop-out. And I I thought really deeply, I I really contemplated that. And I, you know, you start with the word. It's not a cop-out. In fact, there is nothing easy, you know, about the kind of agony and pain a person has to endure Mm -hmm. to even even navigate the spectrum of Mm. suicidality. Why do you think people call it that? Well, because they see it that way. And that's because people's minds tend to be pretty narrow and compartmentalized. And instead of, you know, having the courage to question something and have curiosity about it, which would could lead to having compassion for it, they just take the cop out. That was the awesome part is I was like, actually, that's the very definition of what a cop-out actually means. Instead of actually taking the time to look deeply into why somebody might contemplate taking their life or why, what kind of agony a person might have to be in to go through with it, Mm -hmm. you are taking a shortcut. You are taking the easy way out and you're going to just say, oh, that's wrong. That's bad. The end. Oh, so are you suggesting that people who say it's a cop-out are themselves copping out? 100%. That's the definition of a cop-out. They are demonstrating the true definition of a cop-out. Irony with all caps. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also, in in every human's defense, at least in, let's say, modern industrialized nations, perhaps all, one of the things, and this is another podcast, probably, could be, is like people are busy and things that they have to do, they have to do. I'm reminded of a culture we've created. and 
I don't even know what that means, a culture we've created. <laughs> we live in a world in which it seems as if people are it's very, very busy. Sometimes they really don't have a choice. So what gets lost there? Well, okay, I can talk for two minutes, but not 22 minutes, mm-hmm. right? And so when you're limited by that, like, what do you do instead of taking the time to listen and lean in and all that? Mm. It's just this like very, uh, I don't know how, I don't know the words around it, but the whole, it's all, it's sick. It's not well. Yes. So it's people not. are responding unhealthy to an unhealthy space and it all gets just fucked up. Yes. Yes. You just really hit the nail. You just drove it in because my objective in the rest of my life is to be smarter. And and that's because I do believe, like, I think that we can be smarter and people don't understand intelligence. Like people like to talk about intelligence, but very few people understand it or or have it but yet nobody talks about stupidity yet everyone seems to be suffering from it and part of it is driven by time like i'm so busy i i'm so busy i it. can't think why would i right. think right why, why would i you're asking me to question my beliefs you're asking me to look deeply and contemplate you want me to meditate i got fucking instagram to do like i have an image well, to keep up <laughs> <laughs> well what whatever people's details are in terms of what keeps them busy it is really hard because we have so many things, many of us, not all of us, but many of us can do, but to be intentional about cutting almost all of them out is hard. Yeah. You are, you actually touched a nerve of compassion because I also want to say something on the dual edge of this. And the other side of this is that people are taxed. They are, they are exactly. taxed out. Exactly. They don't have time. I live in an area where, you know, people, they don't have time to be polite. Sometimes I think like, wow, why are you so rude? And I think this person has probably worked their job at 7-Eleven or whatever it is. And they get like, they are hard pressed. They're not going to say, go first. Like you only have one item in your hand. Why don't you go first? It's just go, 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 go. And then they're constantly dealing with this and that. Yes. Nobody has time to learn new things because we're we're taxed out. We don't have the bandwidth, let alone the time. Like it's emotion. Like generational trauma is a serious problem. It it, it does not facilitate critical thinking and education. And <laughs> well, here's a plug for AI and my hope for the future and that artificial intelligence and that technology can democratize so much and help like do the menial jobs and tasks so that Mm. people can be freed up to do more of what they really want to do with their time. If only we can utilize it the right way. If only we can make this work, it's an opportunity for society to hopefully free up more time for us, you know, let a robot do it. And then I can actually think the deep thoughts and heal my wounds. Just so the audience is very clear. I always want to be very transparent. You're real, right? You're not a bot. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that is a very meaningful question to me for somebody who's experienced psychosis firsthand. Uh, yeah, let me let me let me parse that out for you. I am real, living, real. breathing human being. I almost almost sure. I just wanted a hundred percent. Okay, what else would you like to share before we go back to our uh, our lives? <sighs> I guess I just want to say tap into whatever makes you feel vital, whatever rejuvenates you, whatever regenerates you. I hope I I left somebody with at least one nugget of inspiration or hope or understanding or maybe, Mm. yeah, life is better than death. I mean, I don't know what death is like, but I do know how good life can be. And I can say that it's sometimes hard, but there's a way, there's always a 
some way to tap into that goodness again. And something simple like nature or meditation works wonders for me. Exercise, smoking, (laughs) do whatever it takes, man. Do whatever it takes. And you're going to go home right now and you're going to hang with the husband and the dogs? I'm going to take over dog duty. Yeah. All right, cool. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you very much. And you're welcome. Have a good day. All right. All right. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Elizabeth out in Washington. Thank you, Elizabeth. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Real quick, if you're on Apple right now, go ahead and rate and review Suicide Noted. It helps people find the podcast. And we want more people to find the podcast. And that is all for episode number 181. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.